Welcome to the Baseline Community Church Podcast. Well, it's good to see all of you this morning. I'm excited to open up God's Word together. Um, But before we do, I just want to start with a question, and it's a hypothetical question this morning, so just go with me, okay? Um, What happens when you take reality TV, social media influencers, the self-esteem movement, helicopter parents, a highly individualistic culture, an iPhone, and a heavy dose of mantras like be true to yourself and you're a snowflake, and put them in a blender. What happens? This is our culture, by the way. You get what psychologists are now calling main character syndrome. Have you heard of this? Main character syndrome. In a recent article in Psychology Today, a clinical psychologist, Dr. Michael Wetter, describes main character syndrome as, quote, an inevitable consequence of the natural human desire to be recognized and validated, merging with the rapidly evolving technology that allows for immediate and widespread self-promotion. Does anyone remember The Devil Wears Prada? You seen that movie? Do you remember Meryl Streep? She's like this cutthroat, ruthless, just like total narcissist in the movie. That's what I'm talking about. She, she was the main character in her story. And this psychologist, whether he claims that this actually is an age-old problem. Nothing new. We've always been the main character in our own story. The difference now is that we have immediate access to a global audience via social media. Now, this may not be you, but you probably know someone who suffers from this condition. Um, If they're sitting next to you, please don't nudge them. Um, (laughs) But the truth is, at a broader cultural level, I think all of us are influenced by this way of thinking, by this mentality of self-centeredness and self-obsession It's just so normal in our culture. I think self-worship is just like the new norm in our world. Think about just a few phrases that are commonplace in our language. Um, These were some that just came to mind for me when I think of how normal self-worship is. Things like self-help, self-esteem, self-image, self-care, self-respect, self-conscious, self-love. Self-taught, self-starter, self-assured, self-made, self-motivated, self-reliant, self-actualized. And my favorite, self-checkout. In our pride, we thought that we could do better than a professional cashier. And so we invented self-checkout to do it our way. We are so prideful. (laughs) My goodness. Whether or not you live your life as the main character, we all have moments of slipping into this way of thinking. We all have moments of thinking that we are the main character. I think most of us struggle when we don't get our way. We don't like being wrong. We don't like being told what to do. We don't want to experience humiliation. We don't like sacrificing our preferences for the sake of someone else. And we don't want to be inconvenienced. Was anyone inconvenienced this last week? Yeah? We don't like that, right? It's not natural for us to intentionally inconvenience ourselves for someone else. I think if we're really honest, we'll admit 
that sometimes we can be the main character in our own story. And in the Christmas story, there was a guy who thought he was the main character. You know this about the Christmas story? His name was Herod, King Herod or Herod the Great. He suffered from main character syndrome. And so to begin this morning, I just want to give a quick profile of King Herod. If you're not familiar with him, I think this would be helpful. Um, And we'll see how he stands in contrast to King Jesus. And then I want to just put forth three ways that we can follow the way of the king. So to begin, just a quick profile on King Herod, and I'll warn you, this is going to feel a little bit like a history lesson. So all of you history buffs and people that love like church history and all that, you're going to love this. For everyone else, just hang in there, okay? It'll be like a couple minutes. You'll be fine. We're going to get through it. It will will get more personal. But I think it's important uh, for really understanding the Christmas story. So just to clarify, King Herod, he was uh, Herod the Great, the one who was around when Jesus was born, not to be confused with Herod Antipas, one of his sons, who was around when Jesus died later in life. There's a few different Herods going on in Scripture. They're all just sort of nasty dudes, and they're all related. But this was Herod the Great. And to just sort of fill in this picture for you, um, basically, Herod, he was a puppet king who ruled over first century Palestine. He was not fully Jewish. He was half Jewish, so he was never accepted by the Jewish people. Um, But his primary allegiance was to Rome and appeasing Caesar. This is what Don talked about last week, that the Jewish people who were under oppression of the Roman Empire at this time. And in light of his obsession with pleasing both the Jewish people and his bosses in Rome, he did all he could to prove his greatness. He was constantly trying to prove himself. So he built palaces and fortresses and aqueducts and constructed cities. And his crowning achievement was the new temple. You might remember that in the Old Testament, Solomon's temple was destroyed. Now, like 500 years later, Herod was the one who constructed the second temple. It was even larger than Solomon's temple. But what's interesting, I found this really fascinating, was that although he constructed the temple in the name of God... He actually put the Roman eagle over the entrance to the temple, basically signifying his true allegiance to Rome and to Caesar, not to God. He infamously rose to power through political opportunism and brutality, basically wiping out anyone who got in his way. And as time went on, things just got worse, uh, mostly for his family. He... Well, he had multiple wives, and they all gave him numerous sons who were ambitious for his throne. Increasingly fearful of assassination, he ended up killing his favorite wife, her grandfather, her mother, his brother-in-law, and three of his sons. If you missed the first part, he killed them. (laughs) He, like, nasty dude. You do not want to invite him to your Christmas party this year, okay? Um, one historian even noted that Herod on his deathbed, he ordered that hundreds of Jewish leaders be murdered upon news of his death. 
This way, he reasoned there would be national mourning. He knew that Jewish people hated him, so he wanted to ensure that there would be Jewish tears on the day of his death. Can you believe that? Like, luckily those orders were not carried out, but it just highlights his self-obsession. Like, this dude was crazy. He was just all about himself, consumed, self-focused. Until his dying breath, he was all about self-protection, security, wealth, prominence, power, popularity. Luckily, none of the things we struggle with today. Um, That was a joke, so you can laugh. (laughs) At the time of the first Christmas story... Just take note of this for a sec. At the first Christmas, when the Jewish people heard the word king, this is what they would have pictured. They would have pictured King Herod. That's what would have come to mind for them. They would have known that kings have power, kings have wealth, kings lorded over others, and kings used force and killing to get their way, all displayed in the life of Jesus And none of these is true with King Jesus. The main difference between King Herod and King Jesus is the way that they ruled. The way they ruled. That's what we're going to look at today. Both Herod and Jesus were given the title King of the Jews. But Herod was focused on winning the approval of the Jewish people Jesus was focused on revealing his love for the Jewish people. Both came to conquer Jerusalem. In 37 BC, Herod entered Jerusalem with 30,000 soldiers and 6,000 cavalry and took over the city of Jerusalem for Rome. Jesus also came to Jerusalem. He entered on a single donkey with 12 followers and ushered in a kingdom characterized by peace and nonviolence. Both Herod and Jesus were kingdom builders. Herod built impressive palaces and fortresses. Jesus was homeless. He ushered in a kingdom that could not be contained by physical boundaries. It was a kingdom that would never end. A different way to be king. So for the remainder of our Advent series, we are going to follow Jesus' claim in John 14, 6, where he says, I'm the way the truth, and the light. This week, we're going to look at this way of the king. Next week will be the the truth of the king, or the words of the king, and then the life of the king. So for today, the way of the king. Um, Thank you for hanging in there. History lesson, over, okay? Um, Jesus clearly offered a different way to be king, which stands as an example for us uh, for how we should live. And just to clarify, um, by using that word way, the way of the king, the way of Jesus, I'm just referring to a lifestyle. Habits, practices, disciplines, routines, a schedule, the way of Jesus. It's what we follow. That's why back in the first century, that's what people called Christians. They called them followers of the way. I'm sure you've seen that in the book of Acts. The Christian movement was called the way Because it's exactly that, a lifestyle. So how do we follow this way of the king? That's the question before us. So turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. 
I'm going to look at a couple things. Um, while you're getting there, let me just summarize the way of our culture. Okay? This is the way I see it in three simple phrases. The way of our culture, especially in the West, is be true to yourself, avoid pain and suffering, and follow your heart. Anyone familiar with that? Be true to yourself, avoid pain and suffering, and follow your heart. I think this is very common in our world. So if that is the way of the culture, the way of the king is this. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow Jesus. A little bit different, right? (laughs) It's very different. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow Jesus. I I did not come up with this. It's a it's a quote from the Bible. Um, you'll see it there in Luke nine. But look at it in verse twenty three. Then he said to them all. Jesus said to them all, "Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will." Save it. Now, I just want to give a couple thoughts on each of these three phrases. And I'll just say, I think it's worth zooming in on this short passage because it is so countercultural. It's like so backwards to everything that is propagated in our world that I think we really need to pay attention to this invitation. So the first thing, if you're taking any notes, feel free to write this down. And you get some fill-in-the-blanks this week. Kind of fun, okay? So you can actually fill this in on the bulletin if you have one. The first thing is practice the way of self-denial. Practice the way of self-denial. Jesus says, deny yourself. In the original Greek, that word for deny, it's this strong word that means renounce or forfeit or disown even. One commentator said that, it's self-denial. It's, it's not to deny one's personality or to deny things in, as an ascetic or to withdraw from the world. It is instead turning away from the idolatry of self-centeredness. Dallas Willard, he says that self-denial is the condition where the mere fact that I do not get what I want does not surprise or offend me. And it has no control over me. For Jesus, this looked like giving up his rights, laying down his rights, giving up his position in heaven, giving up his status to descend from the heavenly realm and to incarnate himself among us. You probably know uh, that beautiful hymn in Philippians 2. Let me just read verses 6 and 7 from Philippians 2. It describes Jesus' descent from heaven. Verse 6, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. He emptied himself by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. This is the mystery of the Christmas story. The mystery, it doesn't make sense. 
But Jesus, he gave up his kingly rights to enter this world in the most vulnerable state as a baby, born into the midst of a scandal of Mary getting pregnant out of wedlock. And then quickly, his life was in danger from the the murderous threats of evil King Herod. And then he was on the run as a, a refugee in a foreign country. Merry Christmas. Right? Like, basically, here's, here's the way I see it. Basically, the Christmas story is like the complete opposite of the American dream. If you just take the American dream and just flip it on its head, that's Christmas in the Bible. Jesus was a humble king who perfectly embodied self-denial as he entered the world. So what does it look like for us? I think for us, it means denying our false self so that our true self can emerge. In the language of Paul in Ephesians 4, he says, put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. I think that's what Jesus is talking about. He's, he's, he's not saying deny your personality or your personhood. He's created you with that. He's saying deny your your false self, the the sinful cravings of the flesh, the deceitful desires so that you can live into the person who God created you to be. One writer said that when you're willing to sacrifice your rights, position, reputation, or privilege for for the sake of another, you exemplify what it means to deny yourself. But this is really hard us to do, isn't it? It's really hard because it's in direct opposition to everything in our world around us. Henry Nouwen comments on this idea, and I I love this quote, so just, it's kind of long, but listen to it. Um, Henry Nouwen says, the society in which we live suggests in countless ways that the way to go is up, making it to the top, entering the limelight, breaking the record, That's what draws attention, gets us on the front page of the newspaper, and offers us the rewards of money and fame. The way of Jesus is radically different. It's the way not of upward mobility, but of downward mobility. It's going to the bottom, staying behind the sets, choosing the last place. Why is the way of Jesus worth choosing? Because it is the way of the kingdom, the way Jesus took, and the way that brings everlasting life. This way is not natural for us. So as you practice, give yourself grace. How many of you are excited for Christmas cookies this season? Yeah? Yes, yeah. How many of you are excited to deny the sinful cravings of your flesh when it comes to Christmas cookies (laughs) this season? (laughs) None of us. I was thinking about Christmas cookies this last week because my roommate, he is an incredible baker, and he uh, made some beautiful Christmas cookies this last week. Um, they were they were the ones where you, like, cut out different pieces, and then you put, like, raspberry jam in the middle, and there's a little hole in the top, and then, like, you dusted part of it with powdered sugar, and, like, just, like, ornate, like, beautiful cookies. And... He spent an entire evening, like, laboring over these. 
And what was fascinating is that after all of it, he ate one cookie. Then he gave some to me, and then he gave the rest away. That is self-denial. Give the cookies away. Even when it's your right. You see, even with him, I mean, he bought the ingredients. He labored over it for an entire evening. They were his cookies. He could have eaten them all. Out of love, he said no to himself and gave them away. So maybe this Christmas season, just give away some cookies. That might be the way to start. The second thing is choose the way of self-giving love. After self-denial, Jesus said, deny yourself. And then he says, take up your cross daily. You see, Jesus is a selfless king. And the ultimate display of self-giving love was the cross. Most of us are familiar with this. Again, in Philippians 2, verse 8, it says, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, the cross is it's central to Christianity, but I think without immersing ourselves in first century Palestine, sometimes we sort of sanitize it. We get used to the image of the cross. But in that Jewish culture, it was an honor-shame culture. And crucifixion was the most shameful way to die. In fact, it was actually illegal for a Roman citizen to be crucified. It was reserved for non-Romans, the worst of the worst, the lowest of the low. And it was a, a symbol of Rome's power and dominance. It actually was a physical reminder so that when people would walk by, they would be reminded that Rome was in charge. And if you try to subvert the empire, or challenge political authority, you're next. This could be you. The cross was not a cute symbol. It was not a piece of jewelry or a church logo. It was an instrument of death. Nothing wrong with, like, a cross necklace either. If you have one, that's great. (laughs) But in that day, that's not how the disciples would have heard it wasn't a sign of victory. I think that's how we think of it in our day. We think of victory. Jesus conquered sin, death, and the devil on that day. And and we should think of it that way. But when Jesus was telling his disciples, take up your cross, he wasn't saying that. He was saying the path of the cross is a road of, of suffering, choosing humiliation and shame and defeat by the world's standards. So for us, when Jesus is saying, take up your cross daily, I think, I mean, we know he's not saying we should literally die. Because the very next phrase is, follow me. And I think it would be very hard to to be dead and follow Jesus at the same time. So he's not saying that. It's, It's a metaphor, right? He's saying this is the picture of self giving love, of selflessness, of self sacrificing love. Live your life in a way that would go to this length where you were so focused on loving the other. If self-denial has to do with what we say no to, then I think taking up the cross has to do with what we say yes to. One pastor named Dave Lomas, he says that the cruciform life 
And cruciform is just a, a fancy way of saying a life formed around the cross is the cruciform life is a countercultural life of fidelity and love, generosity and justice, purity and promise keeping, nonviolence and peacemaking. It's a daily choice. I think some well-meaning Christians at times have um, have thought of trials or hardships as their cross to bear. Something like like getting cancer or going through a painful divorce or losing a loved one. But those are things that happen to us. And, then, and I think they're a result of sin. They deeply grieve the heart of God. And Scripture speaks to trials and hardships. But here Jesus is saying, this is something different. This is a choice. But he says, we take up our cross. And Luke adds daily. I love that because I think the language of the cross can feel sort of extreme. But that word daily just reminds me that it's actually small decisions that I make every day. We're choosing to to give of ourselves for the sake of another. We give of our time and our resources to serve others. We actively resist pride, even if it means humiliation. We put the needs of others above our own and we intentionally inconvenience ourselves to will the good of another. When was the last time you did that? Intentionally inconvenience yourself to will the good of another. Hard. Really hard to do. But this is the way of self-giving love. The last thing is this. Surrender to the way of commitment. Jesus said to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. He invites us to this way of committing to following Jesus as our rabbi. And I think Jesus was able to say this because he followed the will of his father. He was a loyal king. Not only was he humble and selfless, but he was loyal to his father. You ever notice that? That that so often Jesus gets away in solitude just to check in with his father, to receive direction from the father. John 6, 38, he tells a crowd, For I have come from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. When he teaches his followers how to pray, he says, Pray that, that the Father's will would be done on heaven, done on earth as it is in heaven. And even in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus knelt down right before his death. He prayed to his Father, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. I love the message paraphrase. It puts it like this, that verse in Luke 22. Father, remove this cup from me, but please, not what I want. What do you want? I was just sitting with that prayer, and I felt like like for our community here, for whatever reason you're here this morning, that might be the prayer that you need to make your own. Father, please, not what I want. What do you want? As you just even right now consider what's in front of you with your 
family or your job, things you're praying for, things you're waiting for in this Christmas season, imagine if that was your prayer. Father, not what I want. What do you want? That's what we're committing to. Jesus knew how to follow this path laid out by his Father, even when it involved pain and suffering. And he extends that same invitation to us. Follow me. Follow my way of life. Spend time with me. Take note of the things that I did and then practice it for yourself. You know, we're used to that language of, of following Jesus. Or, I'm a follower of Jesus. Or, you know, and, and I mean, we're used to it on social media too. Like I follow this person or that person. I click this button and now I'm following them. But Jeff reminded me this last week that in the first century to follow a rabbi, it meant that you followed them everywhere they went. You followed them everywhere. You watched every part of their life, how they interacted with people. The things they did, you took notes, and then you tried to do those things for yourself. That is what that invitation is for us, to follow Jesus as our rabbi. Let me just end with a quick encouragement from the end of this passage in Luke 9. If you're looking at it in your Bible, you'll see in verse 24, it says that for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What's so interesting about this is that it's actually not a command. Jesus is just making a statement about reality. Just saying, this is the way life works. This is how life actually works. If you make your main goal in life satisfying yourself, then you will always be unfulfilled. Never going to be satisfied. But if you can learn to let go of your life, you'll find a true freedom and contentment. There's an author, David Brooks, um, who comments on this idea. And just, I'll end with this, but he, he says that in our secular society, it runs on an economic logic where something like this doesn't make sense. Because he says effort leads to reward, input leads to output, an investment leads to profit. But Jesus teaches an inverse logic, which is a moral logic, not an economic logic. He describes the way of Jesus like this. You have to give to receive. You have to surrender to something outside of yourself to gain the strength within yourself. You have to conquer your desires to get what you crave. Success leads to the greatest failure, which is pride, Failure leads to the greatest success, which is humility and learning. In order to fulfill yourself, you have to forget yourself. In order to find yourself, you have to lose yourself. That is the inverse logic. It is the moral logic. There is no other. You see, we're trained in our world. I mean, in institutions, in universities, in our workplaces. We're, we're trained to apply an economic logic to our soul. And what ends up happening is that our souls get crushed. They get crushed because we strive for what we want, and then when we finally get it, we're still not happy. We're still not fulfilled. We're still not fully 
satisfied. But the more I learn about Jesus, I think he actually wants us to have a full life. I think he actually wants us to experience an abundant life, to actually find true life. One of the things I love about this passage is that Jesus is completely honest. He's so straight up about what it requires to be his disciple. There's no gimmicks. There's no bait and switch. He just says, here's what you need to do if you want to be my disciple. And here's the way to the full life. You have to lose yourself in order to find it. So the way of the king, it is hard and painful. It's not natural to us feels backwards. It requires a ton of practice, but I believe that it is worth it. It is the way that Jesus calls the blessed life. So my friends, deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow Jesus. This is the way of the king and it's the way to experience his kingdom. Let's pray together. Lord God, I just thank you that your Holy Spirit is in this room with us now. And I just ask that you in your grace and in your power would interpret the words that have been spoken. You would make sense of them to your people. That even now you would be the one who would encourage hearts. That you would be the one who would convict our hearts. That you would which shed light on the places that we've been ignoring. God, we long to follow your way, but we need your Spirit's help. We cannot do it on our own. And so we just humbly submit to you this morning. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us. For more information about Baseline Community Church, please go to BaselineCC.com.